Open your Bibles this morning to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 8. Last week, after listening to Daniel chapter 7, more than one of you asked with a, a wincing tone, does this mean we're going through the tribulation period? Uh, sure sounded like we, we would. So if that was you, or you thought it, and you, you didn't ask, allow me to relieve you. The answer is no. As the church, we're not going through the great tribulation. We'll not see the, the day of the Lord, not in a, from a judgment standpoint. We are not destined for wrath. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.9 declares that to us. That period of time is called the, the time of Jacob's trouble, and also it's called the wrath of the Lamb in Scripture, meaning it's a distinct period to prepare Jacob or Israel for their Messiah that they rejected the first time. And so this trouble and difficulty that will come during the Great Tribulation will have the twofold purpose. It will soften Israel's heart so it will be ready as a nation for, for their Messiah, and it will also be the assault that comes from, from Jesus as he unfurls the, the scrolls and the, the seals of the scroll. It begins to be very clear in Revelation 6, right after the throne room scene, the seals begin to, to break, and it's the Lord who's breaking the seals, and that's spilling out on the earth. And, and in the book of Revelation, the church is found at the beginning of the book of Revelation and at the end, and it's totally absent in the, in the middle during this seal period or the tribulation period. And in fact, the church is not mentioned after the, the seven letters of chapter 3 until the the marriage supper of the Lamb talks about the, the bride of Christ and then those saints and that bride coming with him in, in clouds. So the church is mentioned 16 times in the first three chapters of Revelation and then not once in chapter 4 through 18. And while that's encouraging, it does not mean that we will be kept from trouble. While we'll not go through the great tribulation, we will experience the travailing labor leading up to it. An overview that is given to us in Matthew chapter 24. You remember in Matthew chapter 24, the disciples ask Jesus, when is the kingdom coming? They're, they're confused. They're not confused about whether there's a kingdom for Israel and whether the Messiah would come and he would usher in the kingdom, but they're, consumed, uh, they're confused about when is it going to come. They expected Jesus to inaugurate it and, and to bring it about right then. And then they also ask, what will the sign of your coming and the end of the age be? What, what will give us evidence of that? And then the Lord answers with a sermon on the book of Daniel in the Olivet, Olivet Discourse. Watch all these time references that I bring up for you as, a, as a, a, I read this. Matthew 24, And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will, mis will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. He's saying, after the fall, normal part of life will be false Christs and wars and rumors of, of wars, but that will not be the end. 
And then he says, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and various places there will be famines and earthquakes, but, but all these things are merely the beginning of the birth pangs. And then he tells them it will get worse. In verse 9, then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name and at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. This gospel of the, the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And what will the sign be that we've arrived at the end? Well, Daniel 7 happening, which is what Jesus says in verse 15. Then the end will come. Therefore, now here's the answer to your questions. When you see the abomination of desolation which was spoken through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, for then there will be a great tribulation. Just has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. The great tribulation is a unique period of time. But there will be throes and birth pangs that feel like it. They'll just be limited in scope. And those will come prior to it. We'll not face the day of the Lord, but we need the lessons of Daniel to endure the pregnancy that leads up to it. And the future saints will need the book of Daniel for the actual birth. So after giving us this end times overview, these four kingdoms in chapter 7, Daniel now turns to something in the future that will be very hard for Israel, but it's not the end. He finishes out this historical section of the book in chapter 7, outlining these four beastly kingdoms that will rise on the earth, and, and he sees them kind of like four mountains. He's able to just see across the peaks, but he can't see in the valleys, like like when he comes to the fourth kingdom of, of Rome. He sees Rome rise, and he sees the end of Rome with the end of Christ, but he, but he can't see the valley that's, that's there between the beginning and the end. And he describes what's going to take place. Three years later, though, Daniel receives another vision in chapter 8 of a period in the future when another evil king will come. And chapter 8's vision actually does fill in one of the gaps. It fills in the gap between the second and the third kingdom. So unlike the previous visions of chapter 2 with Nebuchadnezzar's statue and chapter 7 with the four beasts, chapter 8 is limited in scope. It, it zooms in on the two middle kingdoms, the second and the third kingdom, and covers roughly 200 years. It's specific to the nation of Israel, which is why it's written in Hebrew. In fact, this vision has already taken place. I'll show you. History shows it's, it highlights the period of 350 to 164 B.C. And it's flawlessly accurate, by the way, foretold hundreds of years by, by the prophet Daniel. It's so accurate, in fact, that it's one of the reasons the skeptics want to deny Daniel's authorship and, and to discredit this prophecy. They say it's impossible for someone to know about the Greek kingdom before the Greek kingdom ever rose in the specifics of a man like Alexander the, the Great. And yet for us as believers, we know that that's just foolish. There's a God who can speak the world into existence and save your soul from hell. He surely knows the future and can surely write it down in his book. And while 
that was, it's past for us. It was future for Israel at the time. This hasn't happened yet whenever Daniel receives this vision. <clears throat> so in chapter 5, we have, a, we have a similar lesson about Israel's past or from Israel's past. Can quickly, God can quickly remove any blasphemous ruler like Belshazzar. In chapter 7, we get an overview of what's coming in the future the near future and the far future, the beginning to the end. And then in chapter 8, we're reminded of the more immediate future. Another wicked ruler is coming who will persecute God's people. And sadly, even though it's not in this vision, after him another wicked ruler and another wicked ruler and another wicked ruler, and that will continue up until the time with this last ruler that Daniel 7 tells us about. Another wicked ruler is coming who will persecute God's people, but the Lord will preserve them, and he will remove this ruler in his perfect timing. This ruler will be worse than Belshazzar, but not as bad as the one who's coming in the end. His name from history is Antiochus Epiphanes, and he's the reason for the Maccabean revolt. God will remind us in Daniel 8 that Satan hates God's people and tries to destroy them in every age but he will also remind us that he will deliver them, and so they're to remain faithful. You are to remain faithful regardless of who is ruling. And there have been many periods in history when evil seems to have been devouring uh, God's people, God's elect, and and those weren't the end times, even though people may have thought that they, they were. I mean, as early as Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel was a, was a worldwide rebellion against God. I mean, think how close to the garden that is. And then you can think of Pharaoh's subjugation of Israel and the, the murder of tens and thousands of, of Hebrew babies is another. I mean, you can point to the Assyrian exile in the north, the Babylonian destruction and captivity in the south, which Daniel describes in chapter 1. I mean, surely the people who were alive in 1936 through 1945 through, through thought that Hitler was ushering in the, the last days when he slaughtered 6 to 7 million Jews. And yet he did not, as evil as that was. And what that tells us is two things. Satan's target never changes number one. And number two, as wicked as all of those times of dominating evil, we have no category for what's coming in the future, like what was described last week. The worst of the worst will will seem like child's play compared to the, the day of great tribulation. And yet God will deliver His people from all of it. I mean, persecutions and sufferings are are going on right now all the way around the world. Uh, Hatred and haranguing against Christians and Jews, like what happened during the Nazi reign, yet on a smaller scale, is happening this very morning. And yet God will deliver them too. And whenever the end comes, uh, and a third of the earth will be destroyed, God will rescue His people again. And they must remain faithful even in the midst of all of that that pain. That's the purposeful message of chapter 8. God is foretelling... A time, even before the end, when oppression will come again. But he limits it. And that's the key. And that's the message that all believers need. God limits the time and scope of evil related to his people. He puts wickedness on a leash. He allows evil in the world. He allows wickedness in the world. And sometimes you scratch your head and say... 
Lord, you're God, but it looks like that, that evil and that wickedness went a little farther than, than it should. But God's still in control of it all, but it's on his leash. Specifically when it comes to believers. Chapter 8 covers all the same lessons that we have learned in the book of Daniel. That God knows the future, he sets up kings, he takes them down, and he rescues his people. That, that is just like the reoccurring theme throughout the book of Daniel. But what comes into focus in chapter 8 is that God limits evil. He is all of those things I just mentioned, but His sovereignty not only controls when His people suffer, it controls how long His people will suffer. The key verse of Daniel 8 is verse 13. Look, if you would, at verse 13. And it's found in this question. And it relates to time. Look, if you would, at Daniel 8.13. This is the key verse. It's a dialogue between two angels that Daniel hears here. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the, that particular one who was speaking, How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled. Daniel foresees this vision of a time whenever the temple worship and sacrifice will be stopped, be ceased. God's worship will be ceased by this wicked ruler. And so the question is, how long is that going to last? And the answer comes from the second angel in verse 14. Look at verse 14. And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, 2,300 days, then the holy place will be properly restored. The evil will be allowed by God, but God has also marked out its end. He will limit it. And He has placed a regulator on your suffering as well. God will allow evil in this world, even in your life, but but He will not allow you to be crushed by it. It will not be, on, be beyond what you're able to bear if you take the way of escape. He'll come to your aid, He'll limit it, and that is encouraging. It'll be dark, and there'll be times whenever you don't feel like you can take another step with the, with the hot breath of, of hardship blowing in your face, but and just when you think that you are without strength, He will call time, and He'll rescue you, so don't give up. Don't grow weary in well-doing. All the world may seem against you, but the Lord is with you. And when God is on your side, as it said, you're always in the majority. But for unbelievers, it's the opposite. If you're not in Christ, you have no promise of any limit to your suffering. A terrifying thought. Evil people are merciless, and they are merciless to one another. It is that in life, and it's also that way in death. I think one of the worst things about, about hell is there's no limit. There's no conclusion to eternal suffering. and You don't get better in, in perdition. Don't get this idea that once people go to hell that they're going to be there. Oh, wow, I'm so dumb, I should have, and then they're going to get better. They're, God's not there, there's no restraint there, their heart's not converted, and they're just going to grow worse and worse. I mean, just read Luke 16, it describes that. 
So people outside of Christ go from a merciless world with unrestrained suffering to a hopeless eternity with an unlimited amount that never ends. The Lord is everywhere in Daniel chapter 8, but He's presented behind the scenes, um, just like His control of evil. Chapter 8, this whole chapter is filled with what's called uh, divine passives, which is a verb in the passive voice that describes God's action. does it in a respectful way. It shows He's behind the scenes. He's the ultimate cause and so when Daniel talks about these things, he's declaring that God is directing the orchestra, everything that's happening here. Like in verse 1, uh, when he says, A vision appeared to me. It's a divine passive. Uh, God is the one who gave Daniel the vision. When he says in verse 8, The great horn was broken. Speaking of, speaking of Alexander the, the, the Great, it means that God is the one who took down Alexander the Great. In verse 12, when it says, the host was given over to the horn uh, together with the regular burnt offerings, it, he's really saying that because of Israel's wickedness, God gave His people over to the small horn. And in verse 14, our theme verse, to the, to the answer of the question, how long, it says the sanctuary will be restored to its rightful state, meaning God is the one who will restore his temple. And finally, in verse 25, when this evil king that's described in chapter 8 is broken, it says he's broken without human hands. It's God who's the one who will break him. The Lord's the one who's working behind the scenes. He's working behind the scenes in your life today. You say, I don't see him. He's there. And while the angel Gabriel explains the vision to Daniel, it's God's voice that orders him to do so. But God speaks to this angel just like God is speaking through His Word today. Uh, chapter 8 is laid out very similar to chapter 7. There's a vision, verses 1 through 13, and then there's the interpretation, verses 15 through, through 27. There are five scenes that, that are here. We'll condense them in, into four. And the point of, of all of this future that's coming, we'll call it a notification that God has limited evil and the sorrow of His people. He's, he's put it on a leash. The first scene is Daniel's uh, uh, vision that he receives. He sees it in the land of Susa or Shushan. So verses 1 through 2, so that's the vision's context. The second scene is Daniel overhears this discussion between these two angels. It's in verses 13 and 14. We'll lump this together in verses 3 through, through 14. Then there's the vision's clarification. That's the third scene and the fourth scene. Daniel's fear and interaction with Gabriel is in verses 15 through 18. And then Gabriel's interpretation is immediately given. In verses 19 through 26, so we'll call out the vision's clarification in verses 15 through 26. And then just like last week, there's one verse that describes how Daniel responds to this vision, and that's in verse 27. So the context, the contents, the clarification, and the consequence. Let's look at the context of the, of the vision. There's the timing of it, and there's a location given. Look, if you would, at verse 1. It says, in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. So we're immediately told about the timing of this vision. 
It's after the vision of chapter 7. It's before the prophecy of chapter 5 that's fulfilled. It's before Belshazzar is taken out. And it's during the reign of Belshazzar. It's during the reign of this new king that Israel is experiencing that's very wicked. And here's a new vision. So like before, it, it, it's, a, it's a vision, not a dream. It's interactive. You'll see Daniel speaking there and listening to the angels. He even falls into a deep sleep like Abram at, at one point. And we're told that this vision comes three years after the first one was received. Meaning it follows chapter 7. In the third year of Belshazzar, which is, which is really when Belshazzar's colors begin to come out when, after he takes the, the throne. You, you'll recall back in chapter 5 that Belshazzar was a co-regent. Nebuchadnezzar reigned for 43 years and he died and he was replaced by a number of successors. His son, evil Merodach, ruled for only two years. He ruled about like his name sounds. And he's assassinated by Nereglasser, who rules for four years. And he's succeeded by his son, Labashai Marduk. And he only rules for two months. And then there's a group of assassins and collaborators. And they appoint their own king named Nabonidus to Babylon's throne. Nabonidus marries Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, and he has a son named Belshazzar who reigns for 14 years. But because of some geopolitical changes, he leaves Belshazzar in charge of Babylon and he goes to another part of the Persian, uh, or another part of the empire because of Persia's rising and, and establishes a palace there. And the reason we get this vision is because Belshazzar is, is now, his heart's manifesting. And it's troubling to the Jews who are under him. So chapter 7 was an overview about this final empire, the last king that would arise of, at the end of the age. It's written in Aramaic because it affects everybody. It's a general language of the day. This vision is written in Hebrew because it's specific to God's people. It's an encouragement to them. It was given when Belshazzar is seated in power because he's a God-hater and very different from the previous rulers. And it's for them to look up. They'll be reminded. I mean, if you recall, Nebuchadnezzar, although he was a pagan, praised God, the God of Daniel, and was likely converted by the time he dies. And, and so there is a new Pharaoh that rises, who knew not Joseph, if you will. And, and so God reminds His people that He's aware, and that He's a great deliverer. Hasn't the Lord done that for you at times? When things in your life change, you're facing something difficult, you, you wake up one morning and everything looks like a normal day, but by the end of that day, everything's been changed, it's been transformed. And the Lord reminds you that He hasn't changed, even in the midst of things like that. He doesn't tell you something new whenever He reminds you of those things. He, he reminds you of something that you already know, but, but now you need to hear it again because you're facing the, the trouble. Israel knew that God was a deliverer, but He's reminding them again. He's reminding you things in those times like, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am faithful even when you're unfaithful because I cannot deny myself. Uh, Things like, I am merciful in judgment. I, I forgive the broken and contrite. Thank God for reminders. Amen? There's also a specific reason, though, that he gives the location of this vision. Look, if you would, at verse 2. 
I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, or Shushan, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. So Daniel says he is either in the city of Susa whenever he receives this vision, or more likely, in the vision, he's transported to this to this city. The text could indicate either, but I think it's the latter for, for the reason I'm going to explain to you. Susa, or Shushan, is a fortress city located about 220 miles east of Babylon, and its capital was, was Alam. It's modern-day Iran, Persia. And it was used as a winter palace by the Persian kings. Darius loved it so much when he came along, he made it his administrative capital. You may know the of this city, Shushan or Susa, because of a famous stone that was found there by a French uh, archaeologist in 1901. Whenever they were excavating the city walls, they discovered the Code of Hammurabi, which is located in the Louvre in Paris today, the original. You can go look at it. You might also remember this city from Scripture. Both Esther and Nehemiah lived in Shushan, so it's well known. And the, the canal of Ulai was a wide waterway northeast of the city. And you listen to that and you read that detail there and you think, so what? I mean, how does that help me live my life? Why such precise detail that, that, that seems to have nothing to do with the vision? Well, there's the error. In fact, it does. Daniel sees this vision in Susa because that was considered the seat of the Persian Empire. And so Daniel is taken from Babylon since this vision doesn't deal with the first kingdom, and he's taken to the center of the Medo-Persian world, and he's given a vision about that empire, the second and the third, which is the Grecian empire. And we're told exactly who these two kingdoms are later in the chapter. The ram is the Medo-Persian kingdom, and the goat is the Greek kingdom. And so this detail is very purposeful. He's getting a vision in the place where these two kingdoms are, are going, one's going to rise and then they're going to clash. But I would remind you, the, the reason that detail like this is in the Bible is beyond just orientation. It shows us the accuracy of God's Word. Before calling us to trust in the accuracy of His promise, God proves to us the accuracy of his writings. I mean, don't think the historical portions of the Bible are, are just like throwaway details or things like the literal nature of Genesis 1 are okay to waffle on. Now, I, mean, I mean, does it really matter that Genesis 1 says that God spoke the world into existence in six literal 24-hour days? I mean, what does that have to do with salvation? I mean, can't you... Just forget that as long as you believe that Jesus is the Christ and He came into the world to save you of your sins. I mean, why does it matter? And, and if Daniel's description of the city of Susa is accurate and pertains to the visions, I mean, who cares? I want to know what the vision means. It's because if those details about Genesis 1 and the city of Shushan are, are wrong, it leaves you to wonder... How can you trust the rest of the book? That's exactly why skeptics attack things like a literal Genesis. They know as a Christian you're not going to deny the, the, 
the blood of Christ or salvation by faith alone. And so they chip away at other things, the foundational things, things that don't seem to matter but do. Like when they say that there was no Babylonian king named Belshazzar until his name was dug out of the dirt hundreds of years later. I mean, the Bible does not cover every portion of history because it doesn't intend to, but the portions it does cover, they're just as inerrant as the gospel passages. They matter. And so do the contents of the vision. They matter for God's people. Look at these contents here. It's the second notification that God is limited, evil, and sorrow of His people comes from the vision's contents. Daniel, in this vision, sees an uneven-horned ram in verses 3 and 4. He sees a unicorn goat in verse 5, an unfair fight between them in verses 6 through 8, and then an unscrupulous horn that rises in the aftermath. Look if you would at verse 3. Then I lifted my eyes... And I looked, and behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last, second. I saw the ram budding westward and northward and southward, but no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power, and he did as he pleased and magnified himself. Now from that, it's clear that that we're dealing with visions and kingdoms again. I mean, we've, we've kind of got that, okay? Whether it's a statue or, or a beast or an animal, that represents a kingdom, and horns represent kings. It's consistent through the book of Daniel. So we kind of get that with this vision, but unlike chapter 2 and 7, which dealt with all four kingdoms, chapter 8 only deals with two. It says nothing about the first kingdom of Babylon or the last kingdom of Rome. It focuses on the middle too. The first kingdom is Medo-Persia. It's ram. It's described here as having two uneven horns. And, and it's charging in all directions, conquering. Uh, and the kingdom of Media is the smaller horn, and it rose first in, in history. fits this vision perfectly. And then the kingdom of Persia conquered it, assumed it into its empire. So it's one animal with two horns, one that comes up first and another one that comes up second. The second one's longer because Persia is more dominant. And, and then together this, this ram dominates the world. Babylon fell to the west. We've already read that in chapter 5 with Belshazzar falling in, in the night. And then the north, it conquers Armenia. In the south, Egypt and Ethiopia... But as strong as this ram is, another animal, even swifter, comes on the scene. Look if you would at verse 5. It says, While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the, the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And he came up to the ram that had the two horns and which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him with his mighty wrath. I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged with him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power, the power of the goat. So Daniel is watching. And he sees what is identified by the angel later in the interpretation as the kingdom of Greece described as a swift goat. 
The goat is hard charging and, and fast. It, it seems like it doesn't even touch the ground as this goat sweeps across the land. It, it, just, it, it just moves with just, just rapid pace. And, and in the center of this goat's head is a single horn. So it's a unicorn goat, meaning there's one specific ruler of this, this kingdom. And that describes the kingdom of Greece and Alexander the Great to a T. Just 20 years old when Alexander the Great assumed the throne from his father Philip. And by age 30, he had carved out one of the largest empires the world has ever seen. It spanned from Greece all the way to India and everything around in 10 short years. I mean, no wonder he's described here that the goat looks like it's flying. It's unprecedented. He was undefeated in battle and stands as one of history's most successful military commanders. But he was a man. And so because of his lengthy war campaigns, once they started, they didn't stop, and his wounds from them and licentious living, Alexander dies at 33, assumes the throne at 20, and he's dead by 33 after carving out this great empire. And when he died, his kingdom was divided into four parts, uh, distributed amongst his generals, each ruled. Look at verse 8, exactly what's described here. It says, Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. Remember, it's the Lord who breaks him. And in its place there came up four conspicuous horns, not as great or as dominant as is Alexander, and they're toward the four winds of heaven, scattered to the four corners of the empire, not in one place. But all of that description about those two kingdoms, the ram and the goat, and it's just a prelude to the point of the, of the chapter. And after the unfair fight, now you have this, this unscrupulous horn. Look if you would at verse 9. So out of one of them came a fourth, rather small horn. So, so out of one of the, these, the, the four generals comes this little horn, this small horn, who grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and watch this, toward the beautiful land, which is a reference to the promised land, Israel. Whoever this is, he has particular concern, particular focus on, on Israel. Verse 10, and it grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the hosts of some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them and persecute Israel. And it even magnifies itself to be equal with the commander of the host, equal with God, claims to be God. And it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. Whenever this happens, the temple is going to be shut down. Worship is going to cease. And Daniel's main thrust in this whole chapter is about this other horn that will arise, and he'll do really bad things to the saints. Verse 9 actually skips over 150 years. After Alexander and the four generals, there's wrangling between them, between the Syrian Seleucids and the Egyptian Ptolemies, and it, then it zooms in after 150 years on this final king called a small horn whose attention is focused on the beautiful land, meaning Israel. It's very clear that this is a different horn from chapter 7. The little horn from chapter 7, you remember, comes out of the fourth kingdom. He's the Antichrist. 
And that, that little horn comes out of ten kings. You remember there are ten kings in chapter 7? The little horn comes, he dominates three, and then he assumes all of them, leads all the ten horns. But this horn doesn't come out of the fourth kingdom. It comes out of the third kingdom, out of the kingdom of Greece. So this is brand new information, speaking about a brand new threat with an age-old plan. Persecute God's people. And this will come at some point prior to the last kingdom. And similarities between the two horns, the horn of chapter 7 and the horn of chapter 8, is because the similarities are because they have the same master. Satan's a one-trick pony. He hates God's people, and he'll do everything he can to destroy God's name and those people that God loves. This small horn in history, he has a name. It was Antiochus Epiphanes, and he ruled from 175 to 164 B.C. Epiphanes was the nickname that he gave himself, which, which means a manifestation of God. He believed that he was a manifestation of God, just as verse 12 says. He rose to power through bribery, so he starts small. His nephew was supposed to be the, the heir to the throne, but he weasels his way in and he grows exceedingly great. And, and he was a heinous ruler with a particular hatred for God's people. His focus was on the land of Israel. The book of Maccabees gives an idea of how wicked he was. The Maccabean revolt describes his reign. 2 Maccabees 5.12 verse 14 says this, not scripture, but historical record. He, that's this little ruler, he ordered his soldiers to cut down without mercy everyone they encountered and butcher all who took refuge in their houses. It was a massacre of young and old. He slaughtered women and children, butchery of virgins and infants. There were 80,000 victims in the course of three days. 40,000 dying by violence and as many being sold into slavery. But it was his attack on God's temple that grieved Israel the most. In 167 B.C., Antiochus issued an order that forbid or forbade the regular worship of, of Yahweh and the sacrifices in the temple ceased. And even worse than that, Antiochus entered the temple and erected his own altar on top of the Jewish altar and ordered pigs to be sacrificed to the Greek god Zeus. This wicked king didn't just drink from the vessels of the temple like Belshazzar. He had the audacity to go into the holiest place on earth and defile it with his own desecrating worship. And he removed all the customs of Israel and forbid them to keep, keep God's law. He even made circumcision against the law. Can you imagine what that would feel like being a Jew? Anyone caught circumcising their, their children, the, the mother was strangled. He burned all of the scrolls of the Old Testament. He sentenced to death anybody that possessed a copy of them. It's one of the reasons they hid them, the reasons you probably have some of the scrolls that are found in, in the desert. He built a gymnasium in Jerusalem with all of its perversions. He required shrines for idols to be, to be erected all over the city and for pigs to be offered on them. And he specifically stated that he would do all of that so the Jews may forget the law and revoke all ordinance of it. And you say, that's horrible. And you say, God allowed that? Yeah, 
God allowed that. And verse 12 tells us why God allowed that. Look at verse 12. Here's the reason that this king rises. Verse 12. And on account of the transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. It was because of Israel's sin that they were given over to this horn, and it was Israel's sin that brought the ceasing of worship in God's temple. God warns life outside of the garden will have periods of evil. Don't blame him for that. Uh, it was our sin that put us outside of the garden. Remember God's promise in his mercy, it will be limited, it will have an end. But this is coming in the future because of Israel's future unfaithfulness. And just like in chapter 1, the story about Babylon's exile, here is another moment of, of judgment. Now, what I'm about to say may sound counterintuitive to you, but it is scriptural and it's true. And here's the statement. One of the greatest judgments that God can bring upon you or on a nation is no judgment at all. Kind of sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? One of the greatest judgments is no judgment at all. And yet that's exactly the ultimate judgment that God describes in Romans Chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 22. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts. He takes His hand off. He, he no longer strives with their conscience. He, he, he gives them over to their own desires. No judgment. It is a judgment, but the judgment is no judgment. Romans 1, 26. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. Uh, and then... For their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way also the men abandon their natural function of the woman and burn in their desire toward one another. Sin of homosexuality is, is a form of God taking his hands off. Romans 1.28, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to the depraved mind. God took His hands off of their mind, if you will. It says He gave them over three times to their own lust to degrading passions or inordinate affections, literally vile or offensive, base pathos, desires, where we get the term pathology. And He gave them over to a reprobate or a worthless mind. It's a mind that doesn't work. It doesn't function. You scratch your head and say, how can a boy be a girl? And all of the craziness, that's, it doesn't even make any sense. It's illogical. It's because of a depraved mind. And when a person goes so far or a nation goes so far in their sin that God no longer strives with them, this is what it looks like. He just lets them alone. He turns them over to their own desires. Their conscience is no longer bothered. You, you, you see people on the news that do just unfathomably wicked things, and you say, how could they do that? I mean, I can't even imagine doing that. It's because you have a conscience, and your conscience functions, but at that point, their conscience is seared. It's, God takes his hands off, and so they go unrestrained deeper and deeper into their sin and with less and less hope of recovery. So judgment now is God's grace to you. 
because judgment in the end has no hope of recovery. So be thankful whenever God brings discipline in your life. But one of the greatest disciplines that God can bring on His people is silence. You ever experienced a period of time like that because of sin? Where God seemed far away and distant? Distant? When God's people sin over and over and they pay no attention to His voice in chastisement, God will remove worship and He'll go silent. A famine of His word falls upon the land. Faithful shepherds are replaced with hirelings that fleece the sheep. The wise leaders that point to God are replaced with wicked ones that obscure God and His ways. Amos 8 is an example of this judgment in the Old Testament, Amos 8. It says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread or of thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and from north even to the east. They will go to and fro and seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Elimination of worship is the price that God's people pay for unrepentant sin. You remember what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You want to see God? Have a pure heart. You want to hear from God and have fellowship with God, then confess your sin and keep a short account on it. And frankly, that description there of Amos is exactly where we are as a nation right now. We're under a form of judgment. We've turned from God. I understand that there's a difference between believers and unbelievers, and America is not a Christian nation in the sense that everybody's a Christian. We've defiled ourselves with perversions. We've destroyed our marriages and families with self-gratification and feminism. We've turned from hearing God's word to listen to sycophant experts. We've neglected the gathering of the saints and disregarded the principle of the Sabbath. We've profaned His worship with cheap entertainment and worldly amusements, and no political leader will save us from that. We must repent. And yet, even in that depressing reality, God has not forsaken His people. You are hearing the word of the Lord this morning. And God won't forsake His people in the future either. Look at verse 13. Then I heard the Holy One speaking, and another Holy One said to that particular one who was speaking, How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? How long is this Silence, this removal of worship going to last, this domination of evil. And you may be looking around asking the same question, how long, how long will worship be stopped? How long will evil reign? How long will this go on? But I would just note for you that there are three assumptions in that question. The first one's not encouraging, but the second two make up for it. The first one, how long will this vision take place... The first assumption with that question is that God will allow His people to suffer under the reign of unbelievers. That's part of life. 
in a fallen world, not all will be godly. Some will be even God-haters and haters of God's people. And if you don't understand that, you're going to get confused in times like today. Or if you were a Jew in times like Daniel. But the second two are more encouraging. The second assumption to this question is that, that there will be a limit. Notice there's an answer in verse 14. He said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. The angel asks how long. The second angel gives the answer, 2,300 days, period, morning and evening. This is not symbolic. When Hebrew gives a morning and evening, just like in Genesis chapter 1, it's a literal day. And that period of time fits perfectly to the rise and the, the fall of Antiochus which means God has determined an end. Evil is not unchained. God has limited its leash. And the fact that God calls the end is the third assumption. Evil is not unaccountable. There's not the yin and the yang, the black dog and the white dog, and the, you know Satan and God kind of in some kind of cosmic battle out there, and who's going to win? Satan is a fallen creation, but he does God's bidding. Whatever dominion he has right now has been granted to him by, by God's permission. And the Lord controls evil's ultimate reign. Remember those divine passives behind. He's not causing evil. God doesn't do that. He's not able to do that, but he's behind and just as his finger wrote on the wall the unalterable decree of Belshazzar's death, and just as he defined the three and a half years of the Antichrist rule in the last chapter, and not one second longer, Satan maintains a limitation. He even must get God's permission before he touches one of the Lord's servants in the book of Job. And it's the same for this ruler. His reign will come to an end, and it's also the same for whatever you're facing. The difference between you and an unbeliever is not whether you must deal with the hounds of hell. It's that God has those hounds on a leash with you. He's unchained. Satan is unchained for an unbeliever. If you're outside of Christ, you're listening to Daniel, and Daniel is bringing you inside the gate, and you've already crossed the yard, and you're inside the fence. You've walked all the way up to the porch before you see the sign, Beware of Dog, and then you're, you look to the right and see an empty chain and you hear a growl behind you in Daniel 8. But for God's people, what Satan means for evil, God works for good. And that's what the angel tells Daniel. This clarification in verses 15 through 20. This will go very quickly. Verse 15. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of Uli, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So Daniel is seeing the vision, and, and he's trying to figure it out. And so God sends him some help. He, he sent him a, a man, three consonants in Hebrew, G-B-R, with, with the name for God, L, at the end of it, Gabriel, and this is the angel Gabriel who appears the first time in the Bible here. He appears in Daniel 9, announcing the 70 weeks. He, he announced John the Baptist to Zacharias, and he announces Jesus to, to Mary. And Gabriel 
tells Daniel this vision is related to a time of the end in verse 17. And he references this appointed time in verse 18 and 19 and 23 and, and 26. It's one of the reasons that Daniel likely falls on his face, besides the fact that he sees an angel, hears an angel. Daniel sees what's coming during this specific time for Israel in the future, but he's also told here in the interpretation, it actually prefigures what's going to happen in the end. So it has a double sense to it. All of this is going to happen during the time of Antiochus, during the Greek period. But this ruler, Antiochus, prefigures the last ruler that we heard about in chapter 7. He's not the same one, but he operates the same way. That's why Jesus can use Daniel's reference to the abomination of desolation in Matthew 24 as a future reference. Verses 19 through 26, the heart of the vision just details what I've already shown you. The ram, the goat, the greater horn, the four kingdoms, the smaller horn. But look at verse 23. It says, In the latter period of their rule, that is the four kings that followed Alexander, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise insolent and skilled in intrigue. And verse 25 says he's going to be marked by three things. He's going to magnify himself in heart, pride, He'll destroy many while at ease. He'll be a deceiver. He'll say peace and safety and bring a sword. And he'll oppose God. He'll even oppose the prince of princes. But notice how verse 25 ends. But he will be broken without human agency. Just means he's going to meet his end, not at the hand of a man. And history records that Antiochus died in 163 B.C. from a disease of the bowels, not on the battlefield. And just like the Antichrist will be broken, not by military might, but by the very breath, the very words of God in the battle of Armageddon. And so Daniel is told to record all of this for future Israel to read. If you would, verse 26. It says, but the court will sit for, uh, verse 26 of chapter 8, not chapter 27. The vision of the mornings, evenings in the morning, which has been told is true. But keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. Record it and hold it, because people were going to need it. And that brings the vision's consequence. I think Daniel's reaction to this vision is very instructive for us. And this whole thing ends in verse 27. Look at verse 27. Watch his reaction to the vision, the consequence of the vision. Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. That's similar to what happened in chapter 7. But notice it goes on. Then I got up again and carried on the king's business. But I was astounded at the vision, and there was none to explain it. He, he got an explanation, but he wants more, just like you. More. Give me more detail. <laughs> And I think Daniel's reaction is instructive. He was worn out by the vision. He was sick over the persecution of God's people and this evil that's going to be on the earth. But then he got up and he did his duty. He carried on with his life. He carried on, in fact, the king's business, it says. He lived in a pagan 
world with an arrogant king, no, no, no less. What do you do knowing that there's going to be evil that, that's going to, to come, and, and yet there's, there's going to be a time when God will deliver? Do you put on a white robe and go sit in the middle of a field and wait for Jesus to come? Do you hide under your bed? No, we do exactly what Daniel does here. We realize that evil exists in the world, and at some point it may knock on your door. But God promises that He controls it and limits it, limits it, and so that encourages us to get up and go out and live our lives. So live your life for Christ and do so with confidence. Do not fear, my brothers and sisters. The wicked flee when no man pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. That doesn't mean that you're going to be free from the effects of evil. But you can have absolute confidence. And if you fear over what's coming or over what may happen, the antidote to that is God's sovereignty. All things are divine passives in your life. He's behind them all. and He may not directly cause them, but He controls them all. And there's a direct correlation in Scripture between your walk with God... And your confidence, the righteous are bold as a lion. Assurance of salvation and a clear conscience are intertwined. And so if you have fear in your life, there's some unbelief that's there. And you need to turn to the sovereignty of the Lord or maybe confession of sin. And if you're living in sin in your life and you find no peace, that may be why you're afraid. You shouldn't, understand, you shouldn't expect assurance. But if you wake up every day submitted to the Master, happily obedient to Him, I know you're going to sin. I do too. You confess that. You repent of that. If you do that every day, then you'll have nothing to worry over. Isn't that exactly what Jesus says to His disciples in Matthew 7? Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and what? All these other things will be added. You have no reason for anxiety, even the basics of life. And so while we have evil... Now and more coming on the horizon. God promises it's limited. It's on his leash. He'll use it. Your job is to trust him and remember that and get up and then live your life. Serve the king. The king. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace, the clarity of the book of Daniel, I am so thankful that you fill in the gaps even when we read passages like this, which is full of symbolism. You just make so much sense of it, Lord. We look at it in depth. And I do pray if anyone is facing trouble, evil, even this morning, that you will remind them, remind them that while these circumstances may be new to them, you haven't changed. And you'll never forsake them. And I pray for anyone who's outside of Christ that they will, will realize, maybe even through the consequences of, of, their, of their own sin, that you're merciful. Um, warn them, though, Lord. There's a limit to your long-suffering nature. Save them before you take your hands back and I'll give them what they truly desire in their heart. 
and do that for Jesus' sake. I pray in his name. Amen.